0: all right good morning this is like the best sunday the best sunday of the year it is uh without a doubt the the sunday that as as a church as followers of jesus as christians that we look forward to because of what it means because of the significance of the day and uh just you know this may shock some in the crowd but this isn't about like egg laying mammals uh or any variety of species of egg-laying animal it's not a it's not about that it's not about you know cool colors on eggs and and that kind of stuff that may be fun and cute and all that the kids may enjoy it, but that is not what Easter is about it's not what we're here to do we're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and just so that you know what I'm talking about uh we're not talking about myth we're not talking about resuscitation We're not talking about superstition. We're not talking about legend. What we are talking about is historical fact. What we're talking about is spiritual truth. What we are talking about is the murder of Jesus, killed by crucifixion, wrapped in grave clothes, laid in a tomb, and three days later, walking again. I mean, that's it. I mean, that's it. That is that if, if anything, if Christianity can be distilled to any one thing, it is that Jesus was dead, but now he is not. I mean, that's it. Like, there, there is nothing greater, nothing bigger, nothing more mysterious, nothing more wonderful, nothing more beneficial, nothing. There is nothing more than Jesus was in a tomb, and he walked up out of death, having conquered it. He is the Lord of life, the giver of life. He is the risen Son of God, the resurrected Messiah, and he is alive and well. He is alive and well, and that's what we celebrate on Easter. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ, and that is the, the very centerpiece of Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no Christian faith. It does not exist. It is completely in vain. And those are the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. Our hope, our hope, the entirety of our hope is wrapped up on the fact, in the fact, that Jesus was in a tomb and he walked up out of it. So that's exactly what First 1 Peter 1, 1.3 would say. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So this is why we celebrate. This is why we celebrate the resurrection, the greatest event ever in the history of humanity. That Jesus went into a tomb, and he's no longer in that tomb. He walked up out of it. Now, I know that the cross is the emblem of Christianity. I know that the cross is the symbol that we, we associate with Christianity, and that's rightfully so. That's rightfully so. But the cross is meaningless if not for the empty tomb. The the entirety of our faith, the cross itself is meaningless if Jesus did not come up out of the grave. In Romans chapter 1 verse 4, it teaches us that the very power of the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. It proves to us that Jesus is the Son of God. So here's why this is important. If Jesus is the Son of God, then what he did on the cross really did happen. If Jesus is in fact God himself in the flesh, what he accomplished on the cross, the payment of our sins, then that's for real. And if that's for real, then it can be trusted. And that's the question that needs to be asked and answered by everyone in this room this morning. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust in jesus i i i would believe or i do believe that everyone in this room that if we're all honest and we all to kind of lay it all out on the table that we would all say i want a blessed life i want to be happy you know in in the bible the word blessed means happy we mean joyful right at peace at rest fulfilled satisfied complete like having security Having peace of mind and peace of heart, I, I, how many of us are tired of all the stress and the duress, the angst, like the suffering, everything, and, and, and just being beat up by the world and being beat up by ourselves and being beat up by our families and being beat up, beat up by sickness and we're tired and we're sick of it and the heartbreak, the suffering of it all. And the fact is that the blessed life that you want, that I want, is right there available. It's free, given to all of us, and is given to us by God. All we have to do is trust in Jesus. And by trust, what I'm referring to, I'm referring to allowing yourself to be loved by God and in turn loving him back. By trust, I'm referring to faith in Christ. And and for those of you that have been part of Anthem for a while, you know that when we say faith, we don't simply mean belief. When we say faith we mean belief to the point that you follow right because faith in Jesus isn't a one time decision it is a lifetime decision so it is giving of yourself into the arms of Jesus, like trusting Jesus, like immersing yourself in Jesus. That's what trust is. And when you do that, there is this supernatural capacity that is given to us by God through the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, through, by grace, through faith, where all of a sudden in the, the storms of life, there's a capacity to be at peace, even in the worst of it. Because we know that the things of the world don't bring happiness, Right? The stuff around here cannot satisfy us. We can't satisfy ourselves. People can't satisfy us. The stuff of the world cannot satisfy us. Why? Because everything down here, everything down here lies, cheats, gossips. Everything down here breaks, corrodes, decomposes, decays, rusts, gets eaten by moths, runs away, or gets stolen. There is nothing here that is eternal. There is nothing here that satisfies. Everything here is only going to let us down. What we need is not a better job. What we need is not a bigger paycheck. What we need is not for our kids to behave for five minutes, though that would be nice. That is not what we need. The blessed life that we need comes only not by looking to the things of the world, but by lifting our heads and looking up at the risen Savior. And there is blessing upon blessing, satisfaction and fulfillment. There is, there's courage in trusting Jesus. There's valor, there's integrity, there's character. All the good stuff that we want is there available freely, made, made available to us by Jesus. And all we have to do is trust and place our faith in him. So what we're going to do this morning is is simply this. We're, We're asking the question, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? And I would say that for us to be able to say, yes, I trust in Jesus, I got to appreciate the resurrection. I got to have some rejoicing in the resurrection. I got to have some understanding of this risen Savior who came up out of the tomb but for me to appreciate that, i got to appreciate what happened on the cross. i got to understand the, the, the horror that took place on that cross so many years ago. So what we're going to do, we're going to spend some our time this morning, we're going to walk through those moments as Jesus approached the cross and was on the cross so that we may get this understanding of what happened to Jesus, what he endured for us, what he did for us. So then, when we talk about him coming up out of that grave, oh my goodness, right? It's rejoicing. And when we rejoice in the risen Savior, then we know we can trust him. And then, we can live that blessed life that we all so deeply long for. Sound like a plan? Now, I would say that we all struggle to appreciate crucifixion. And the reason being is that probably... All of us have never actually seen a crucifixion take place. And I would say praise God for that. Praise God that we don't have to see those, let alone go through it ourselves. But when the Bible, the, the New Testament, particularly the, the those first four books of the New Testament, so the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when those writers wrote to that first century audience, they didn't have to give detail about what happened on a cross. Because the people there were extremely familiar, extremely aware of the brutality and the horror and the shame and the disgust of crucifixion. In 4 BC, the Roman general named Varus, he crucified 2,000 Jews in just a few days. In 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus, it was said he crucified so many in Jerusalem, there wasn't room for the crosses to stand. So that audience in the first century, when they heard the word crucified, they would be jarred because they had seen it. They had felt it. Probably a loved one had gone through it. A family member had gone through it. A friend had gone through it. They knew exactly what it meant. To be crucified, crucified is, or crucifixion would be the most evil, wicked invention probably devised by the human heart ever in the history of humanity. What it is, it's, it's a torture device. It is specifically intended to maximize pain for the longest amount of time possible. There's a, a first century historian, his name is Josephus, And he, in the first century, referred to crucifixion as the most wretched of deaths. And it wasn't uncommon for someone to be nailed to the cross and be there for three, four, five days, up to nine days, by some accounts, impaled into wood. On top of the the physical brutality was the shame of the cross. I know that all these pictures of Jesus, he's wearing something. And it's probably good in the pictures, but the fact is that when they would crucify someone, they would crucify them naked. So there you are, brutally hung up for everyone to see in all your shame. And to make it worse for the Jew... The Jew that was familiar with the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, 23, says, cursed, accursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And there is no difference between a tree and and a cross. The crucifixion is the worst kind of hanging that there is. That there is brutal physical torment and there is awful public shame, and there is an accursing that takes place by that, by he who hangs on. On a cross on a tree. And here's what's marvelous: is that despite knowing the gruesome torture and the public shame and the curse of being crucified, Jesus stepped into it. He, he knew what lay before him. He knew that there was, there was going to be a betrayal, that there would be this God that would betray him. And he knew that he would be surrendered into these authorities and that those authorities would torture him and that he would suffer. And he knew that he would die a violent death, yet he stepped forward into it. He accepted that which was before him. He embraced it. And the reason why he did that, the reason why he did that is because he knew his purpose. He had a mission. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so Jesus, like a stud, like the stud that he was, he walked forward into that mission. And there he gladly laid down his life and he endured the shame and the torture and the suffering and the death That we may be relieved of all of our sin, of all our guilt, of all our shame, of all that holds us down, of all our heartbreak, of all our iniquities, transgressions, and trespasses. All of it, Jesus did gladly, gladly that God would be glorified and that by grace we would be saved. That was his mission. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? That God the Father may be glorified and that we would be adopted into his family. That's the gospel. That's what took place on the cross in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Some summarize it up, all of it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So it's the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. He enters into Jerusalem as the king, and even the people are shouting, Hosanna in the highest, son of David, right? They're accepting him as their king, and he comes walking in, and as soon as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple, and there he begins to teach in the temple. And Instantly, immediately, the scriptures tell us that the religious officials, the religious leaders, the the priests, the elders, and the scribes, they conspire against Jesus to do what? To kill him. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 3 to 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. These religious leaders are plotting in secret. It says in stealth, right? They're being all sneaky about it. And the reason they're having to do this under cover of shadow is because what they're doing is illegal. They have no charges to bring against Jesus. Jesus has done nothing wrong. So the question is, why in the world would these religious leaders, why would they plot to kill Jesus? And the Gospels are extremely clear about why they were jealous of Jesus. They were envious of Jesus. They did not want Jesus to be their king. In other words, they wanted to be in charge. Folks, this is the exact same sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where they refused to submit to God and they refused to yield to God there's the, these Pharisees, these guys, they're doing the exact same thing. I don't want Jesus to be my king. I want to rule over my life. I'm going to establish myself as my own God in my own world. And that is why these guys, instead of submitting to Jesus, plot to murder Jesus. It's a sin of pride with them. And then the priests find a willing accomplice. Among the disciples, Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Why? His motive is Greed. You know, Judas is one of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples. He was the twelve, one of the twelve, right? He was the disciple specifically in charge of the money. He was the treasurer of Jesus' ministry. And in John 12, it tells us that he would siphon money from Jesus into his own pockets. So what's Judas's sin? It's greed, it's coveting, it's actually caring more about the things of the world than the things of God. It is caring more about money and stuff and possessions than it is about the Messiah, the Savior, the King. So the agony for Jesus begins on that last Thursday night. It's after they've taken the Lord's Supper. And Jesus goes to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And he knows the horror that awaits him. He knows exactly what he's about to walk into and what he's about to meet there. And he goes to this garden to pray. And he's so aware, he's so acutely aware of the horror that is coming on a collision course toward him. That Jesus prays in Matthew 26, verse 38, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And the word sorrowful there does not mean sad, it means grieved beyond despair. Jesus is horrified, it's really the word. Jesus is horrified. Because he knows what's coming his way. And what's bringing the horror isn't so much the physical torture that he's about to go through, but it is the wrath of God that he will have to endure on our account. He's so emotionally distraught that in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. To the ground. And so he's so stressed, so distraught, so grieved, so heartbroken, that there is a condition that Jesus entered into it's called hematidosis, where it's like when you get so angst, so stressed, that the blood vessels, the capillaries in your sweat glands actually burst, and so blood gets mixed with sweat. And so that's why he was sweating blood. And folks, I want you to know this, that when you're heartbroken, when you're stressed and overwhelmed and when you're grieved and you don't know how you're going to make it out of a situation, whether it's the death of a loved one or personal sickness or financial trouble or whatever it may be, and you feel it in your gut, Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. We have a high priest that sympathizes with us. He knows us that well. He knows what it's like to be us. The anguish is so severe that Jesus prays in Matthew twenty six thirty nine, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so again, I said this, right, that Jesus is not looking forward to this physical torture and trauma that he's about to go through. But that is not why why he is so distraught. He is distraught because he knows he is about to drink of the cup of God's wrath. What's going to happen to him on the cross when he's crossed, when he's nailed to it, is that your sin and my sin is going to be placed on him to the point that he becomes that sin. And the father is going to look at Jesus and look at Jesus as if Jesus is sin. And he's going to do the only thing that a holy and just God can do to sin. And that is annihilate it. That's the cup of wrath. That's judgment. That is what we deserve because of our lives and sin and sexual morality and gossip and malice and unforgiveness. And so Jesus knows that's what's coming, and he he knows Job twenty one, verse twenty. He knows what sinners deserve. Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. So Jesus recoils, recoils at the thought that he was going to be sin itself. And here's why, and this is what makes it worse for Jesus. Because sin was going to be placed on him, he was going to miss out on the one thing he loved the most. Nothing, nothing brought joy to Jesus, but God the Father himself. And in those hours when Jesus is on the cross, our sin would be so overwhelming that it would blot his relationship with his father. Folks, this is what sin does. Sin separates us from God. It blots God away from us. It keeps his goodness away from us. It keeps us from enjoying his presence, from enjoying his blessing. Sin separates us from God, and that is precisely why Jesus recalls, but Jesus remains steadfast and immovable, right? Right? Despite knowing that he is going to become sin, and despite knowing that God is going to pour out wrath on him on account of our sin, Jesus remains steadfast and immovable, and he charges forward toward that cross that God may be glorified and that we may receive the grace that we so desperately need. So, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas arrives with this company of soldiers with this company of religious leaders and they're armed with clubs and swords and Judas walks up to Jesus and before anything else happens or said Jesus just looks at him and says friend do what you must even at that point Jesus is calling his betrayer friend does that tell you anything about the loving heart of our savior Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek, and then with that, the mob takes Jesus into custody. And it's interesting that it it has to be at night, right? Why not during the day? They knew where Jesus was during the day. He was at the temple, but it's an illegal arrest. It's completely illegal. They have trumped up charges. They have to do this under cover of night because they're doing it out of hatred, and they're doing it out of jealousy, which makes it appropriate that they would do it under the cover of darkness. So this mob comes, and they take Jesus. They take him to the the priestly palace where they're holding court, and there they're out to condemn Jesus. They're even bringing up false witnesses. They're trying to trumpet up against Jesus. Okay, you say this, and you say this, and we're going to just make it easy to convict him. They bring up the false witnesses. They start giving their false testimony, and they start contradicting each other. Well, of course, right? So the high priest, Caiaphas, gets frustrated because even their plan is not working out the way that it should, or at least he wanted it to. So he gets all upset, and he scolds Jesus. Finally, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son, of the, God, the Son of God. And Jesus says, I am. And the priests weren't looking for the truth. They were just looking for an excuse to kill Jesus. So when they heard Jesus say, I am, they're like, sweet, we can charge him with blasphemy. Because to say that you're the son of God is to say that you are God. And no one can say that they're God unless they're actually God. But we don't believe that you're God. So now we have all the reason that we need to kill you. And that's exactly what the people say in Matthew 26. He deserves death. And the gospel of Matthew tells us at that point that they begin to spit in Jesus' face. To slap him. Luke tells us that they mocked him as they beat him. They, they blindfolded him. And they take turns hitting Jesus and mocking him. they say, oh, prophesy, tell us who hit you that time. In the Gospel of Mark, it adds that the guards received him with many blows. Folks, I want you to know that when a mob gets a beating, they don't throw a few punches. It is a long, drawn out, awful beating. And here's the thing what has Jesus done? He's innocent. All he's ever done is heal people, right? There's a blind person. He gave them sight. There's a person that can't walk, and he he helps them to walk again. A person died, and he raised them from the dead. What has Jesus done? There were hungry people, and he fed them. What has Jesus done? He told them the truth about God's kingdom. What has Jesus done? And here you have a mob assaulting the Son of God. And folks, I I want this to be very clear to all of our hearts that this is exactly what we're all capable of. This level of brutality and harshness and evil lives inside our hearts. We are very capable of doing the same to Jesus and to others. The religious leaders didn't have the authority to execute Jesus, so they take him to the governor whose name is Pontius Pilate. And there they trump up the charges, and they lie. They say Jesus is going around telling people not to pay their taxes, which was a complete falsehood. And after hearing their case, Pilate actually is unimpressed. He's unconvinced that Jesus has done anything wrong. It actually tells us in in Matthew 27, 18, he says, I find no guilt in this man. I found nothing. And it actually tells us in the Gospels that he knew that the reason why they were trying to kill Jesus was because they were envious of him. Like, it was clear to everybody. They were just jealous and envious of Jesus. And Pilate, you know, he's the ruler. He has to do something, and he he thinks he has a way out of the situation. And during the Passover week, there was a custom where they would release a prisoner out, you know, whatever the crowd said. We want so-and-so released, and that person would get released. And so Pilate thinks he has a way out. He's like, all right, Jesus has done nothing wrong. I don't want him to die. Uh, I'm going to put him against, like, the worst person in prison because surely the people will pick Jesus to be released. So he puts up this guy named Barabbas, a notorious murderer, up against Jesus, and he asks the crowds, who do you want me to release? And the religious leaders convince the entire crowd to say Barabbas. And it actually says all. And just a few days before, the all, all the crowd was yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just a few days later, that same crowd is saying, crucify him. Because that is exactly what Pilate asked. What do you want me to do with him? And they said, all, oh, crucify him. And then Pilate even asked, why, what evil has he done? And the people didn't even answer his question. They just said, crucify him, murder him, kill him. Curse him. Curse him. Pilate, in front of everybody, takes some water and he literally washes his hands in front of everybody. He says, I wash my hands clean of this. This is your doing, not mine. Isn't it interesting that Pilate knew better? He knew Jesus was innocent. But instead of fighting for justice, what did he do? He gave in to peer pressure. Right? He gave in to the mob. He gave in to what the people were saying in, in Mark 15, 15. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd released for them Barabbas and having scorched Jesus he delivered him to be crucified Pilate's sin is that he cared more for the praise of man than he did for the praise of God that he cared more about the fear of man than about the fear of God he cared more about what people said so he pandered to them as opposed to live a life where he lived to please the Lord that's his sin so Pilate issues the order for him before he's crucified. He's going to be what is called a scourged, be scourging. And there are a few things as brutal as a Roman flogging. And here's where I think we need to slow down just a little bit. A Roman soldier would take what was called a flagrum. It was a whip. A whip with multiple leather straps on it. And each strap had metal balls in the strap. And each strap had pieces of bone, sharp bone, in each strap. And what happened to Jesus is that he was either tied to a post or around some rock, exposing his back and his legs. And that Roman centurion, and it was at least 39 Lashings. And with every, with every strike, the, those balls on the straps would, would tenderize his meat, right? It would cause contusions until eventually the, the flesh opens up. And just imagine, because if you're the Romans Interior, when you do that whip and those bones stick in, you, you have to pull back. Because it sinks into the skin and to the muscle. And with each rip back, it exposes more flesh. And all you're left with are ribbons of bleeding flesh. Every time he would whip. And that is exactly why Isaiah 53 5 says, By his stripes we are healed. Soldiers then twist that some thorns together, right? And they force it into a crown, and they forced it upon the brow of Jesus. And every painting that you've ever seen of Jesus, you have a few drops of blood, right? But is there any part of the body that bleeds more than your head? Folks, it would have been profuse. And these Roman soldiers, they take this purple material and they put it on Jesus like it's a royal robe because purple is the color of royalty. And they put it on Jesus and then they, they took this reed and they put it in his hand because that's his royal staff. And they knelt before Jesus and oh hell, king of the Jews, mocking him. And then they grabbed that, that reed begin began to beat him on the head spitting on him the whole time spitting on him the whole time and it actually tells us in Isaiah in Isaiah 52:14 that the beating is so severe that he doesn't look human he doesn't have the semblance of a human being and this occurred to me just a couple of nights ago why did he look so distorted And it's because that's how ugly and grotesque our sin is. He was made to look on the outside the way, folks, we look on the inside. These centurions don't care. They don't care what he's feeling. He's bleeding, marred, bruised, beaten. And now it's off to crucifixion. And they take... A piece of raw lumber weighing 100 pounds or so and they throw it on his back. And they make him carry his own instrument of death. And because he's so weak and because he's so frail at this point, he can't do it. And they ask a bystander named Simon to carry his cross for him and eventually they end up at a place named Golgotha which means place of a skull. And they lay the the lumber down, and they laid Jesus on top of it. And that's when they took five to seven inch nails and they drove them through his wrists and through his feet. Areas of the body known to be nerve centers. And having been nailed to it, they lift up the cross. And then what do they do? They drop it down into the hole. And just imagine the searing, the waves of agonizing pain. As metal, it's just on raw bone and tendon and flesh and sinew and nerves. And Jesus has two choices on the cross, right? He can either sag down and let all his weight be on his wrists, or he can push up on his feet where the nail is through his his feet. I don't know if you know this, but the word excruciating literally means from the cross. The horror, the painful horror of the cross was so grotesque, so otherworldly, that in the first century they created a word just for it. Excruciating. Excruciating. There's a, another first century historian. His name is Seneca. He described crucifixion as drawing breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony. And here's what people don't understand. You don't die on the cross because you bleed out. You die on the cross because you suffocate. You asphyxiate. What happens is that in this position, you cannot breathe. Your, Your diaphragm is locked into an exhale position. You can't breathe out. You can't exhale. And the only remedy is that that person has to push up on their feet where that nail is to relieve the tension on the diaphragm long enough to breathe out, catch another breath, and then sink back. And it's just a form of torture where you suffocate in every ounce of energy that you have. You expend it just trying to breathe. So it's... It was nine o'clock that he was crucified. He hung on the cross for three hours, when finally the moment came that Jesus dreaded. It happened around noon, and it lasted about three hours, and this strange, ominous darkness covered the Earth. This is when Jesus became sin. This is when your sin and my sin was placed on him. And there was darkness everywhere. And it represents that this is what we deserve, right? To be cast out of God's presence, to be cast out of darkness. This is what we deserve. It's death completely removed from the goodness of God, completely removed from the light and the presence and the blessing, the protection of God, completely removed from that. And Jesus is cast out into outer darkness. Folks, does that help you to understand how awful, how brutal our sin is? That when our sin was put before Jesus and God, it blotted the Father's face from Him. Then around 3 o'clock is when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22. He's quoting from Psalm 22. Before the cross, Jesus knew what that would involve, but guess what? He knew that it would end, right? He knew that it would end. John 17 tells us he knew it would end, and it would end in glory. But on the cross, during those three hours, during the height of wrath and judgment, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's asking is, Lord, how much longer? He knew it would be over. So when he quotes that psalm, he's simply saying, how much longer, Lord, because this moment is truly awful and God forsaken. It's upon hearing those words that a bystander, when they heard him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A a bystander took a sponge, he put it into some sour wine, he put it in a stick, and he held it up to Jesus' mouth. It was his way of shutting him up. Understand this, that in the first century in this part of the world, a hyssop sponge, which is what this was, what was used back then as toilet paper. And they would use sour wine as an antiseptic. So this bystander is not being merciful to Jesus. He is giving Jesus a toilet brush and saying, shut up. And with that last gesture of human sin and filth, Jesus having tasted of all our sin, it is in that moment that Jesus said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And in that very moment, something beautiful happened. That in that temple, there was a curtain and that curtain divided man from God. And that curtain was supernaturally torn in two. That the separation that exists between us and God on account of our sin was destroyed. It was eradicated. No more need for alienation from God by the blood of Christ through his death. We now can have fellowship with him. We can have forgiveness of our sin. We can receive grace for eternity and for our daily living. Because of what he accomplished on that cross, it is finished so it was completely done and having done that jesus died and they took his his body and they wrapped it in a linen cloth and they laid it in the tomb and then they rolled this large stone over the entrance and before we go any further i would like to ask one question do you see yourself in that story Judas handed Jesus over out of greed. The priest handed Jesus over out of pride. Pilate handed Jesus over out of fear of man. We're no different than Judas when we care more about the things of the world and money and stuff than we do about God and the things of God. We are no different than those priests and those religious leaders when we refuse to submit our lives to Jesus as Lord and we elevate ourselves as master of our own life. And we're no different than Pilate, when we care more about what people say than about what God says. You know, there's, a, there's an old song that asks a question. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the truth is that every single one of us in this room has to say, Yes. We're not simply reading a story 2,000 years later. We're not mere spectators. We are participants in this story. We are all Judas's and priests and pilots. There's a very well-known pastor, theologian, his name is John Stott. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us only the person who is prepared to own their share in the guilt of the cross gets a share in the grace of the cross so folks we are all Judas we're all the priests we're all Pilate that's the bad news the good news Jesus went to a cross and died and took your sins upon his shoulders and died for you, whether you're a Judas, a priest, or a pilot. He came to be a ransom for many. He came to seek and save the lost. He came that through his shed blood and his death, we could receive forgiveness regardless of what our sin is. So, yeah, I've never actually betrayed Jesus, but I have lied. Right? I've, been, I've shown malice. I mean, what, what is your sin of choice? Is it gambling? Is it some form of addiction? Is it pornography? Is it sexual immorality? Is it anger problems and temper? Is it l- lack of control? Is it fear? Is it animosity? Is it divisiveness? Whatever it is that your sin is, we're all sinners. And praise God, Jesus went to a cross that we would not have to live in that sin and deal with its eternal consequences. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of the cross. That's what Jesus did on the cross. When he said, it is finished, he meant it. It is finished. It is done. Now forgiveness is available and eternity in heaven is available. And the reason, folks, the reason we can trust that Jesus did that on the cross is because three days later, he came up out of the grave. Two women, Mary and Mary, the m and they go to where Jesus' body had been laid. And they discover that the stone has been removed. They look for the body. It's not there. And an angel shows up and he says, I know who you're looking for. He is not here. He is risen Folks, this is the glorious story of Easter because it does not end with dead, bloody Jesus. It ends with resurrected Jesus. At any point on that cross, because Jesus is God, he could have climbed down off that cross, but he chose not to. Why? Because it was better to come up out of the grave than it was to come down off of that cross. Because through that, his name is exalted. God the Father is glorified, and we are saved forever and ever. And folks, that is why we celebrate this day with the zeal and the passion and the fervor and the happiness that we do. This is the celebration of Easter. And I do think that it's interesting that Jesus got to see the birth of Jesus. I'm sorry. People got to see the birth of Jesus. People got to see the miracles of Jesus. People got to see the death of Jesus. People even got to see the ascension of Jesus when he went up through the clouds into heaven. No one got to see the resurrection. I wonder why. And if I could venture a guess, it's because there is too much glory in that cold, dark tomb. You know, in the the Old Testament, there was a day when Moses walked up to, to God. He said, Show me your glory. And God said, Nah, nah, you'll die. You'll die. And Moses had to be shielded from God's glory, otherwise, he would die. God's glory had to be restrained from Moses to protect Moses, right? Well, folks, in the grave, there is no restriction of God's glory. It is God's glory unrestrained, and God's glory walked into that tomb and killed death once and for all and vindicated Jesus as Lord and Savior. That is why he is worthy of all glory and honor and power forever and ever. He is not only the slain lamb, he is the risen Savior. And that is Easter. Isn't that good? That's good stuff, folks. We celebrate Easter. Jesus is the Son of God proven by the resurrection. Because he's the Son of God, he did what he did on the cross. And therefore, you can trust him. You can trust him. This blessed life that we all want, guess where we find it? It's in Christ. It's in Jesus. It's found in him. The, the satisfaction, the, 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 the good stuff that we want, the peace and the joy, the relief and the calm, the love, the goodness, God's very presence, it's all available by trusting In Jesus and placing your faith in him. And again, that is a lifetime commitment of following Jesus. Not a one-time decision, but a lifetime commitment of following Jesus and trusting him all the days of your life. And the, the blessed thing, and we always call this the blessed life. The Christian life is not easy, but it is the blessed life. And it's blessed because if you place your trust in Jesus, this is as close as you'll ever get to hell. God's presence is with you forever. God is walking with you every moment of every day, watching over you, taking care of you, protecting you as a father takes care of a child. Doesn't that sound good? That's the good stuff. So I think we need to ask that question how do you need to respond this morning? How should you respond to this story? And if you're someone who has never actually placed your faith in Jesus, if you never trusted in Jesus, you could do so right now. Just come clean before the Lord. He knows. He knows it all. And he loves you desperately. Jesus proved it on the cross. Right? Just come clean and confess, Lord, I, I'm a sinner, and confess your sin to him. And he knows that he'll, with arms wide open, he embraces you and welcomes you home. That's why it's called grace and mercy. It's compassion. So Jesus is just come on and just, just repent from your sin and turn to Christ. Trust Him, trust in Him. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've made that decision at some point in your past, I want you to heed the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a chapter that is all about the resurrection of Jesus. And it ends with these three verses. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your work is not in vain. How do we, if you are a follower of Jesus, how do you honor the risen, resurrected Lord? What does it mean for you to trust him today, tomorrow, the next day, next week, next month, the rest of your life? What does it mean? Be steadfast and immovable in this glorious work that he has entrusted to us to take the gospel to our neighbors, to take the gospel to the ends of the world. It is to live a life where we sing God's praises, where we pray to him, where we read the Bible, where we give, serve, practice Christian community. Sounds like the spiritual disciplines. Where we practice this lifestyle of being a follower of Jesus. That's how we, that's what it means to be steadfast and immovable. You know what it looks like? Be love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled. That's our mission. That's Jesus' mission. Let's fill Andrew in and the world with love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus. And it starts at home. It starts with us. Are you love-filled? Are you faith-filled? Are you hope-filled? Are you striving to honor Jesus in your life, through your life daily? Why? Because He is the risen Savior. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I just want to give everyone a a quick moment to just reflect and to respond privately where you are. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, is this the moment that you trust him for the first time? If you've never done so, and no one's watching, but if this is a moment that you're accepting Jesus for the first time, would you raise your hand? If you're a follower of Jesus... And you need to commit to being steadfast and immovable in the work of the Lord because of the work that he has done on your, ha- on your behalf. Will you raise your hand? Lord Father, I praise you for this time that we've enjoyed. I praise you for your word, for this wonderful, marvelous story of the gospel of the crucifixion and of the resurrection, Lord. And I praise you that it doesn't end there because you're seated right now at the right hand of the Father intervening for us. And one day, one day you're returning for your people. What a beautiful story this is, Lord. I pray that we may all be affected by it, that we would succumb to it, that we would entrust our lives to it, that it would come out of every fiber of our being, every second of every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.